Welcome to the Educause Integrative CIO Podcast. I'm Jack Seuss, Vice President of IT and CIO at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. And I'm Cynthia Golden, Associate Provost at the University of Pittsburgh. Each episode, we welcome a guest from in or around higher education technology as we talk about repositioning or reinforcing the role of IT leadership as an integral strategic partner in support of the institutional mission. Today, we're joined by Clara Jelenkova, Vice President and University Chief Information Officer at Harvard University. Clara, I loved your Harvard bio picture. It was quintessential Clara. It was informal, but you had a wonderful smile on your face. Could you take a few minutes and sort of talk about your career and how you ended up at Harvard? I'm an accidental technologist, right? So I, uh, I'm actually an economist by training. I, you know, I'm, I have a degree in economics and Slavic languages. Then, you know, later on, I, I got additional degrees, but you know, that my training was in, was in that. And when I was graduating from college at UW-Madison, uh, I realized as any good economist that IT paid more than entry-level economics jobs. So here I am, right? I turned what was a hobby at the time into a career. And I, was, I have been extremely fortunate to not only work for some great universities, but also to work for great CIOs. I worked at UW-Madison. I worked both with Annie Stunden, who was a legend, but also with Ron Kramer, two just really wonderful CIOs. Then I went uh, and I worked for Tracy Futhi at Duke University. And again, you know, Tracy has been very giving and very supportive of my career. And actually one of the, you know, assignments that she gave me as a, you know, kind of an interim assignment was a very important assignment, which was being an interim chief information security officer that, you know, role that lasted nearly two years, but really prepared me for the CIO role, my first CIO role, which was at University of Chicago. And then I left Chicago to go to Rice University. And I know this is kind of an interesting choice, but I was interested in a in working at a different, different, slightly different university that is smaller in scale, but where the job was somewhat larger. So the job reported to the president, but also uh, my job was VP for information technology and international operations. So it allowed me to flex outside of IT. And that I found that very interesting because I saw more of the academic enterprise and how the academic enterprise works. Now I am uh, I have been at Harvard almost one year. So so Clara, you've talked about these incredible institutions that you've been involved with. How do you go about managing your career? You mentioned a few of the choices that you've made and and what has influenced you in making these changes from one institution to another? You know, this is such an interesting question, Cynthia, because I am not sure that I'm actually managing my career, (laughs) Uh, at least not actively, but I'm always motivated by what I can do and what is the problem that is put in front of me. And that's, that's, that is what, what drives me. So I, I view my career as a series of assignments, but 
this common thread in my career. Like I have been involved in the Common Solutions Group and Internet too ever since I was at UW. And somehow that becomes, you know, so there there are these job assignments that I have, these roles that I have played, and I have learned different skills in each one of the roles. But then there's the national work that I have been that has been very important to my career as well. And it's, I just don't know that I'm that planful. So Claire, you and I have been friends for many years. And at least on a few occasions, I think we were the only US CIOs that went to the Terena conference over in Europe. And I learned about the fact that you grew up in Czechoslovakia, that talking about your mother really interests me, how she was a physicist and an, a programmer. Can you talk about, you know, how that early life influenced you and how that has helped you evolve as you've made the leap to the U.S. and to different institutions? So thank you, Jack, for for asking this question. So one of the profound decisions that my mother made for me was in middle school, there were two classes that we could take. One was typing and the other one was programming. And my mother, I wanted to take typing because all the girls took typing. And my mother said, do not take typing. If you learn to type, you will always take notes, take programming. (laughs) Uh, And so, but also my mom actually taught me how to program, right? So, no, at the time we were, you know, so it was learning Pascal was what that, what that class was. But, and, and actually my mother was incredibly supportive of me learning computer skills. And she, she smuggled a Commodore 64 from a, on a trip from West Germany into Czech Republic for me to have a personal computer. But I love that thing. And so that's why I, I always say that computers were my hobby because it was something that I did with my mother. And it was, you know, my mother is very cerebral, very introverted. And so it was a it, it was a great way to relate to her. And so it see my my career has been shaped by powerful, influential women from the start. What can I say? <laughs> I think you and I might be uh two of the people who listen to this podcast who ever programmed in Pascal. <laughs> no, you can add me to that. Too. Okay. <laughs> Anyway, Clara, you you mentioned Internet 2 a few minutes ago and and the national work that you've done. Could you talk a little bit about your involvement with Internet 2 and and why that community is so important to you? So I, you know, so to me Internet 2 is about bringing universities together to actually deliver certain types of products, right? So it's not just a collaborative community, but it is a community that is jointly providing services and influencing how services are provided. I have been very lucky to be, you know, supported by people such as Jack. I mean, it was actually Jack who got me involved with In Common in a kind of a leadership way. I was in, I was involved more on the technical side and just being part of a group of people that deeply care about an issue, whether or not it's federated identity, networking, et cetera. And we are working together to make it happen and not necessarily taking our institutional 
perspectives, but taking a perspective of what we need nationally and internationally, I think is a great training ground for a CIO because a lot of the time in a CIO role, you need to not think about a parochial view of an organization, but you need to think about the university-wide impact, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think it has been Besides, it's a, it's a, just like any higher education community, it's a wonderful community. So, Clara, you know, as you talk about community, and, and you have been just, a, you know, a wonderful leader in the Internet 2 community, I'm curious, what gives you hope for the future and what gives you concern as you're thinking about community, especially coming out of the pandemic that we have? You know, so can I tell you what I worry about the most? I worry about our pursuit of efficiency. Mm -hmm. I think we have taken it way, way too far, right? And that efficiency is eroding our effectiveness. So bear with me for a second. So we have gotten completely addicted to these 30-minute meetings on Zoom and going from one to the other. And then... You, you know, you get on these Zoom meetings and you go straight into the agenda, right? What happened to waiting for the person to come across campus and having little chit chat with your colleagues? You know, what happened to this? Oh, hey, you know, how, you know, how is your son, daughter? You know, how are your parents? How was your vacation? It, you know, so we, we have kind of squeeze joy out of life mm -hmm. through this pursuit of efficiency. And I think it is eroding our sense of community. And one of the things that we as technology leaders, and I'm not talking about CIOs, actually, I'm talking about us as group of technology professionals that have to take on the mantle of leadership, right? And lead from where we are. We have really not grappled with the human impact of this kind of drive for efficiency. And I, so one of the things that I talked to, to our team about is like, let's bring some inefficiency back. You know? <laughs> let's like, let, let's take the hit. Like, you know, we are doing this test this summer. Let's like take this hit. People take time off. We are going to tell people that we are going to potentially miss deadlines, right? Like let, let, and I have signaled this, right? Because we really need to bring the community back because in you know in some in some aspects, and we need to have barbecues and we need to have Juneteenth in get-togethers, and we need to just be together without an agenda and probably without Zoom, just kind of relating to each other in a in a more human way so that so i i think i think we have this pivotal point because we have been in this technology induced efficiency for the last two years and if we don't flip back we may lose what made our communities on campuses special and i'm, I'm talking about especially the it communities because we know that we are all going to have hybrid work right but we need to somehow bring this community sense into the hybrid work. I certainly agree with you at the institutional level, but I also think it's true at the community level. You know, we we haven't connected face-to-face -face as often and figuring out how we think about what face-to-face. -face. Now, maybe pre-pandemic, there were 
too many meetings that may be there. But I think the idea of no face-to-face meetings will sort of undermine that connectedness that you're talking about that's just so important as a social fabric of keeping people connected and building trust. That's a great point. Well, you know, I agree too, Jack and Clara, and I think that we're going to have to be really deliberate going forward about looking for those opportunities and ways to connect people. No, no, absolutely. And so, you know, we are actually very actively thinking about that. So I started, we're starting this summer, a staff council, which we didn't quite have before. And the, one of the goals for the staff council is to really try to figure out and work with the leadership directly, right, in a, in a kind of a staff council sense on how to bring the sense of community back. You know, the, the thing that I worry about also in this space is when we are very sequestered in our homes, right, our sense, our our support network erodes as well, right? So it used to be this concentric circle, right? It was you and your family, then it was your workplace, then it was the people that you got together for dinner every Friday and Saturday. And then, you know, it was extended community, et cetera. We are facing incredible onslaught of very troubling situations, and I think without the sense of community and being able to have water cooler conversation, we are our employees are more more vulnerable okay. uh, because they they don't have that support network that the workplace actually provided. Right, <laughs> Cynthia, this is where you have a, a fantastic point because the intentionality can be a, around people just having the ability to talk to people about things that are troubling them, right? Mm -hmm. And some people don't really know that they're missing that either. Right, right. That's we come in, I think, in leadership roles to, to look at that, look at what the situation looks like and do what you're doing, which is, you know, working with the staff council. I think that's great. Yeah, and I just I just really think we need to provide more support for our employees. So like, you know, we have an open conversation about, you know, burnout. I think that happens on every college, right? Staff burnout. But what we are hearing from our staff and we have, you know, amazing team of people that are very open. You know, it's like they're saying it's not just the burnout from long hours. It is also the burnout of kind of this onslaught of news and concerns, right? It's just too much, right? I think it is our role as an employer to provide support for people and to give them a sense of community that cares about them, Mm -hmm. right? So I, I, you know, I just think that's that's you know something that we will need to grapple with over the next year um, as we come back. I agree. I think that's going to be important. So, Clara, in September, to circle back to Harvard a little bit, you you joined Harvard as CIO, and could you tell our audience what your focus is in this role and how this might be different from your previous roles? So, the Harvard role is a very very interesting role. So it's a uh, university CIO role. The reason why it's called university CIO is because Harvard is legendarily 
distributed, uh, distributed, right? And so each school has a CIO. So I chair the CIO council and, you know, each, each graduate school has a CIO. I'm, so I'm in, in some ways, each school has its, has its own set of priorities, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, then I'm also the uh, FAS CIO. So FAS stands for Faculty of Arts and Sciences. It is the undergraduate college, but also all of the PhD slash graduate programs, plus Division of Con- Continuing Studies, plus athletics. So it's a, it's a very unique construct. So I am also, at the same time, a little bit of a school CIO, right? And it's very interesting to exist in these different spaces, right? And think about what is the right thing to do, what the priorities should be, and how do you do the right thing for Harvard, right? Have have you learned how to do that? Still learning. <laughs> Still learning. And you know what? I mean, I think that's actually great, right? Because you 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 want to take every job that you have and you want to you want to learn something right but i think one of the things that i'm doing more and more is developing a network of people that are functioning as essentially my sanity check right so we have a little fas team that gets together and we are talking about things and you know issues that are that are coming up and saying well what is the best approach that we should take for fas the cio council is a is a very good venue to have conversations about the right things to do for um, for the university. We are actually in the CIO council. It's very interesting. One of the things that that we are trying this this coming year is, you know, moving away from the kind of traditional five year strategic plans. And moving to more agile methodology where we decide to have two to three goals and make progress on those two to three goals in 12 to 18 months. And some of it is a little bit of response to the pandemic because it seemed, you know, like the world has changed so much that planning for five years out just seems a little presumptuous. But it's also letting us, giving us a permission to experiment a little bit more and you know do just certain things quickly and and inject a sense of innovation right kind of we are we can do something that is not big five year you know project but rather like try something if it doesn't work well let's try something else right because one of the really important things i believe that we can do as leaders is to stop doing things. Because actually, I think it, 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 saying no is more of a testament to leadership than saying yes. So, you know, so I think it's a, you know, so how do we inject that? How do we, how do we give people a place to say, hey, it's okay to try something and for it not to work? Not something not working is not a failure. Right. <laughs> well, speaking of learning, I know that from conversations with you that you're going for your PhD. And and so you've been a student through the pandemic. Um, yeah, I know you started before, you know, the this, but how has going back and getting your PhD given you more insight, 
for learners in general or insight to, you know, how to grow professionally? So, so just to go, I'm getting an EDD. So it has been very interesting to be a remote learner, right? And one of the things that I now appreciate a lot more is the time during the pandemic when we were asking students about their experience, the most differentiating element of their experience was the professor in the classroom, right? And the only thing that the technology could do and the administrative professors, uh, administrative, sorry, administrative tasks and then, you know, administrative systems could do was not to make that experience worse. But nobody would say, oh, I have completely fallen in love with the student information system. (laughs) Nobody will say that, right? And I, I realized being a student that that's absolutely true, right? That it's still, I mean, we provide the environment, the context in which the learning happens, but still the, the primary experience is with your faculty member and with you and, and with your cohort, right? So I have, I have formed, you know, wonderful friendships with people all around the world because my program is international and, but also, you know, great relationship with my advisors. And the, the thing that I learned and I think is an incredibly helpful skill. And it, it happens when you go through a, any sort of a doctoral program because you have to write this thing, right? So I'm four chapters into my five chapters. So by, by the time you have to write something of that length, if you have to write an email, no problem. <laughs> you know, writing a five-page paper, no Writing a report, no problem. Uh, the program that I'm in, which is at, at Johns Hopkins, is very research-focused and very analytical, and it gives you this academic bend when you're uh, discussing problems that I think is incredibly helpful. What's your What's your dissertation focused on? It is focused on the issues of privacy and agency and learning analytics, and you know how, how that you know there's a quite a bit of research actually in this space. So you know what is the student expectation of privacy and agency, and what is the institutional posture, and. So I ran a study. I have to run one more study, but I ran a study. It was very interesting was that the students overwhelmingly expect that if the institution is going to share their data with another entity, that they would be notified of that sharing. So if, you know, so let's say that you have EAB, I don't know, what is it? some sort of a collaborative that, you know, where institutions send data and they do analysis and holistic care of the student, right? So the expectation of the students is if if an institution has an agreement that they would notify them that their data is being shared. That is not how FERPA is structured. That is not the law, right? And so it's that dissonance because what you see I'm sorry, they tell you never to ask a, a graduate student about their doctoral <laughs> dissertation. So cut this, cut this. But but what is interesting is how much the 
consumer expectations are entering higher education, but we have an institutional posture, not consumer posture. Yeah. And that doesn't surprise me, actually. But, right. but this is it. I'll, I'll look forward to reading it when you're done. Well, you will be one of the four people, no, five people. You know, my advisors, me, you, and maybe my husband. But you know, but thank you, Cynthia. <laughs> I, I can add two more people: myself, and John Fritz. John has been sort of on what you've been talking about, student agency uh, and learning analytics for five or six years, and that was sort of what he wrote his dissertation on. I know. I know. Yeah. So, Claire, one of the things that's always impressed me is how you can be both blunt and compassionate at the same time in your conversations with people. It's, I've always been impressed by the fact that you will push back on someone if you think that you, know, they, you need to have that honest conversation. And I'm curious how you evolve that skill. Is A few years ago, I read a book by Kim Scott called Radical Candor that's talked about this. And you operate in that perfect zone of honesty and compassion. And I'm just wondering how you learned to do that. Yeah. And I would say when I was younger, a lot younger, it was only the radical. Um, so, so, you know, some of this comes with age. <laughs> we, we all kind of, you know, wear down those edges, right? But, you know, again, it's it's through feedback by other people. And I had wonderful mentors early in my career. And, and one of them, I mean, I mentioned several of them already, but one of them whom I didn't mention was John Peterson, for whom I worked at UW-Madison for time being. And he was, a, you know, like a retired Navy commander and, and, and running IT at, a, you know, at operations unit was a director working for Annie was that you know was you know his kind of second career right his retirement job and I had one of those moments when I was only radical and he called me and he said listen you're incredibly talented and you can actually be a CIO but not if you behave this way and it's, you know, and you have a decision to make whether or not you're you're just going to couch this a little bit differently. And it, that was that was an example of <laughs> kind of this, what you're talking about, this radical candor, right? It was also a wake-up call. And so I so I think I learned this by people giving me feedback and navigating my way through it. You know, another person that gave me phenomenal advice was Mike Pickett. I, I don't know if you remember him. He was a CIO at Brown University. And I was at Duke and I was very kind of business. This is why I can joke about the efficiency because I was one of those people that would like end meetings and go out, you know, like and leave, right? And Mike would say, you know, linger a while. Ask people about how they are doing. You don't have to like leave the meeting right away. Nobody's kicking you out. I mean, learn a little bit more about the people that you work with. And so it's and so it was through these kind of thoughtful interventions that I evolved and changed and became a happier person, by the way. Much, much happier person. So I think it's you don't do this on your own, right? What you highlight is that all too often 
when we're doing performance reviews, we may be going through the motions. And if you're not giving people honest feedback, you're really not caring enough about them. After reading that book and thinking about it, I've had to be sort of more blunt than I was used to being because I recognize that's a part about caring. You know, I I want them to be the best that they possibly can be. And I want them to be able to have the career that they want to have. And I've got to give them the feedback then that they need. And so, you know, that kind of advice behooves all of us to be both caring and honest in the way that we communicate with people. Thank you. But also, Jag, I mean, I guess what I'm also trying to say is we all are a work in progress and we are kind of a quilt that's stitched together by the people that we worked with, right? And, you know, going back to a point we were making earlier about the sense of community, right? I think I have benefited by most of my career being in person. And I do worry a little bit about early career people and are they getting the same level of mentoring that I was getting? And, and I'm sure Cynthia, you and Jack were getting as well. When, you know, people would just sit down with you, yeah. sit by you and say, hey, like, you know, I mean, the, the things that Annie did for me, take me to meetings just to kind of sit there and observe. I mean, it, you, you, that just doesn't, it's much harder to do now with this remote world, right? It is. And we talk about this, I talk about it here a lot. And and that's where I think, you know, if we're going to be in this kind of hybrid work mode, then that's back to this idea of having to be really deliberate about mentoring those early career people and, you know, trying to replicate some of the things that we all had that helped us in our careers. I agree. So, Clara, we always end with the question, what does being an integrative CIO mean to you? I I think to me, it means developing an incredible network so you can sense things, right? So you you can see what is going on at different levels of the organization and being able to connect things that are not necessarily related on the org chart, you know? And so this is another thing that is just absolutely wonderful about Harvard. You can look at Harvard and get an organizational chart, but the truth of it is that Harvard has a completely informal organizational chart that you're not going to find anywhere. Mm -hmm. And being able to understand that and being able to Take viewpoints that appear divergent, Mm -hmm. but be able to connect them and find solutions that bridge them is to me what integrative CIO is. So like not being able to see centralized versus decentralized as opposing concepts, but rather a, a spectrum and a decision of where you want to be. And the realization that with different services and at different times, one institution can be in different parts of that spectrum, right? Mm -hmm. So to me, that that's that's what that that's what that means. And I think the other thing, and I feel very strongly about this, is that it is the role of the CIO to give voice to the people 
who are not thought of as decision maker and become the spokesperson for the end user. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the time you have administrative systems rollouts, you have executive committees, et cetera. But you know, who is actually speaking for the people in the departments that are going to be using that 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 system? So now at Harvard, for example, we are doing this what we call a face landscape study, and we are interviewing people and we are purely looking at what is your experience of technology. Mm-hmm. And we are talking to departmental administrators and to students and to faculty because being able to get that perspective in addition from you know the top down perspective right and doing it as a mixed methods study you know where you have qualitative not just quantitative survey can be very powerful so we interviewed about 200 people by now i interviewed 40 people myself you know and we we that's our first phase we are going to go into the second phase and then being able to reflect it and and make it consumable for executive audience and then translate that into actions that matter that's another element of it well thank you for these terrific comments at UNBC we read the Collins book and what we always talk about is Whenever we're in one of those moments, we sit there and we say the genius of the end and the tyranny of the or and try to find where that common ground is for the compromise between those two elements. But um, what you describe sounds uh, really interesting. So thank you, Clara. This was wonderful. It's great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. 